Welcome to Tad Dickel's Leadership and Strategy Podcast, bringing you authentic conversations with leaders about their approach to leadership and their organization's strategy for success. Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Strategy Podcast. This is Tad Dickel, your host, and I am here today with our guest, Dr. James McLeod. James serves as a chair and professor of history at the University of Evansville. He's a cartoonist. He's a published author, uh, historian, and uh, really excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. I'm just delighted to be here, Tad. So James, maybe start by telling the listeners about your background. Okay, well, I, I was I was born in Scotland and uh, educated at the University of Edinburgh. And in 1994, I was looking for a for a position after finishing graduate school, and a, a job came up at a place called Harlaxton College in England. And uh, I'd never heard of that, and I'd never heard of the University of Evansville, and I wasn't sure I'd ever find out any more about it. But you know, my life changed pretty dramatically when I interviewed there and was offered and accepted that job. It's, of course, the British campus of the University of Evansville. So I worked there for five years, and then in 1999 came here, and I've been living in, in Evansville ever since. And my historical research uh, was covered a variety of things over the years, uh, mostly focused on, on war and religion. Um, but in about the last uh, eight years, I've focused on, on studying the place where I live, Evansville, Indiana, and that's been a, a real joy to, to research and learn and, and uh, read and write about the history of Evansville. Great. A, a fun question I want to ask you to start. What percentage of people from Evansville can identify correctly your accent? Uh, I would say it's about, well, it's probably declined over time as my <laughs> accent has declined over time, but people are usually pretty good, although they, they will often ask if I'm Irish. Okay. Um, and that is, funnily enough, the, my accent is a mixture of Highland Scottish and Lowland Scottish which is, ends up being pretty similar to a Northern Irish accent. So I can't blame them too much for not, <laughs> for not identifying it. No, right? they, they do pretty well. Very good, very good. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you, having grown up in Scotland and are, are transplanted to the Evansville area, that you have really taken this keen interest in the history of this area. What about Evansville or what about that topic has really kind of piqued your interest? Well, yeah, it, it is. If, you know, if you'd asked me when I was leaving grad school, uh, do you think you're going to become an expert in Evansville, Indiana? I probably would have thought you needed your head looking at. But in a way, it's, I think it's a pretty interesting journey. You know, I'm sure a lot of the people that you talk to in this podcast talk about uh, transformation and, and, and growth and, and all of that. And, and really for most of the first half of my career, I kind of looked down my nose at, at local historians. I, I kind of thought local history didn't really stack up with the, studying the world wars or something like that. And over time, what I've come to to realize, I think, is that really, in many ways, local history is the foundation of everything else. Everybody has a has a local uh, has a neighborhood. Everybody has a place where they grew up, and I think it's it's really important for people to to know about the place they come from. So I, my my adopted uh, town or city of Evansville uh, is a place with a pretty rich history, as you know, and uh, there's lots and lots of interesting things to study. But what I would also say is that what I what I try to talk about as often as I can is the astonishing way that the local history community welcomed this alien, this stranger, into their community. You know, some of these folks, Tad, had been working on Evansville history for decades. And then I come along and say, I want to do this too. And they could very easily have said, you know, who do you think you are? Or you need to live here for another 10 years before you can, instead of which they welcome me with open arms. And uh, all of them have bent over backwards to help and have been so supportive. And I've made a ton of friends for life in that local history community. So um, I think there's, when, when I uh, 
research the history of Evansville and one of the things that you keep hearing people talk about is the quality of the people here and what a great community it is to live in. And I'm sure we'd all testify to that. And I think this is just one more example of how this community welcomes in outsiders and, and kind of makes them, uh, makes everybody a citizen of Evansville. Sure. I think this will be kind of a, a little bit different feel from some of the other podcasts that, that uh, interviews that I've conducted. Many of them have been with, you know, the, the leader of a, mm-hmm. of a company or CEO, owner, business owner, nonprofit executive. And I really wanted to have this conversation because I think that your perspective as a historian and thinking about the history of this area and maybe how leaders uh, mm-hmm. have influenced uh, the, the mm-hmm. history and, and really kind of where we ended up at, at where we are today, uh, I thought would be a really interesting spin for our listeners. And I think also, though, you have, uh, you have experience leading as a chair of a department, and, and so you have some practical mm-hmm. leadership too. So as we think about leadership, how would you, how would you describe leadership? Like what does, what does that word mean to you, or uh, what do you think are characteristics of, of leaders? I, I think uh, to, to, to me, the, the, the best leaders are leaders who lead by example. Um, who, who maybe don't necessarily have to tell people what to do, but show them the way to do it. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I would, I suppose like many of us, including you probably, I know your dad has been on this, this pod, look to our parents for, for examples of, of, of leadership, you know, people who, you know, my dad was someone who pretty quiet person who was not a particularly demonstrative person, but was a kind of had a quiet strength about him. So you know that's the kind of leadership style that I that I like, but I would also say that, uh, and, and I think history very much bears this out, is that you need different kinds of leaders. When you know, sometimes I was just talking to someone yesterday about the civil rights movement in Evansville, for example, in the 1950s and 60s, and that person was being kind of critical of a couple of the folks in Evansville who were less than confrontational about civil rights. You know, I would agree, I agreed with his assessment of these people, but I'm much less critical of these people because I think you need the confrontational people who are on picket lines and who are getting themselves arrested and all of that kind of thing in a a movement like the civil rights movement. But you also needed the people who were not quite as militant as that, who uh, had a slightly different perspective and who were maybe more willing to to work with the powers that be to, to effect change that way. So um, with, that might be a, sound like a cop of, of an answer, but uh, I, I think you, you sort of need um, in, in, a, in a movement like that, you need people who are, who are willing to be very confrontational, but you also need the people who are willing to see the other side's point of view. And then, of course, maybe it goes without saying that to be a leader, you need people who will follow you too. So uh, in, in the context of, of this podcast, I, I think one of the things I really tried to do in my most recent book was emphasize the fact that leaders played a really important role in the transformation of Evansville after the war. Uh, but you also have to look at the contributions of just regular people that, you know, the men and women who were um, working in factories, the men and women who were, you know, cooking dinner for their kids and teaching in schools and all of that stuff. So, you know, I think um, it's it's always really interesting to look at leaders and historians, I think, to a fault over over centuries have tended to focus on leaders. Uh, but the reality is that none of none of the dreams of leaders would ever be fulfilled without the folks who are, who are willing to actually go and do it. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting, probably as a as a leader, we've I, I probably grew up at a time where there was a lot of purification of of leaders and certain leaders in in uh, American history or or other aspect other times. But it, it's also interesting to think about like. What is their influence versus like just the influence of society? Yeah. You know, group influence versus individual influence. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, because it, it, it seemed to me from from looking at, at Evansville, for example, in the in the 60s, uh, 
some of what was happening was very much being affected uh, by by leaders and and people who could make things happen. Uh, some of it was just the '60s, <laughs> you know. So it's almost this that some of that stuff would have happened no matter what leaders did. And and oftentimes these these movements, these really important movements in history, are pretty organic movements. You know, I, I think if if you think about something like the Reformation, for example, there's a tendency if you look at the literature that tends to focus on the great men of the of the Reformation and then of the of the Catholic Reformation. But the, the reality is, that, again, none of that really would have happened without people, the, the people in the pews, as it were, mm-hmm. you know, make, voting with their feet and, and agreeing to go along with it and changing the way they worshipped. I mean, it's pretty amazing when you think about stuff like that, that um, these were just really forceful movements. Mm. That, that moved, in the end, millions of people and changed the world. And the leaders were important, for sure, but, uh, you know, culture and society and, and just people changing, I think, was a big part of it, too. Mm-hmm. Your, your two books um, that I'm familiar with, Evansville and World War II, and then you where you looked at Evansville's, you know, really unique contribution to World War II, and, and particularly in the manufacturing space, right. ships, airplanes, ammunition. And then your, your second book, uh, Lost Evansville, where you look at aspects of Evansville that are no longer around mm-hmm. and, and you felt like needed to be recorded. Talk to me, let, maybe we start with the book, uh, World War, the World War II book. What role do you think leaders played in terms of shaping what Evansville became during World War II? I, I think it, it, leaders played an enormous part in that. So again, just, of course, the work was done by the, the people of Evansville and people from around here. 60,000 people in the end were in this workforce here in the city. But you could definitely make a case, uh, Tad, that none of that stuff would have happened without the role played by business leaders, labor leaders, and political leaders. And I think they demonstrated a a variety of of characteristics that are probably the same characteristics that you hear about uh, on in your interviews here uh, week to week. You know, one of the things that that really strikes me about that story is that uh, they demonstrated uh, a really amazing ability to see the future. Now, there might be a better technical term for that, but but uh, almost a prophetic uh, ability where in uh, early 1941, the war is raging in other parts of the world, but it hasn't come really to the United States yet. And yet these leaders looked at the, at the environment and said, if we don't do something, uh, we are going to be left behind. And um, th- that, I think, would be a, a second characteristic, I suppose, of their leadership, which was being proactive r- rather than sitting around waiting for war orders to come to Evansville. And they were they were all men. These men went out and made it happen. So, you know, I think probably a lot of the leaders you talk to are, are people who spend a lot of time um, looking at patterns and, and looking at what they think is going to happen in the future and probably talking to people to get their view on that as well. So uh, that was pretty striking to me. The fact that they realized that they would have to go out and and um, and get this uh, business to come to the city. Uh, and then a third characteristic of these uh, particular people, which I found just amazing, was the level of cooperation that you see. I don't want to pretend, and I don't think anybody that knows Evansville's history would pretend that this was a city where everybody always loved one another. Um, and where business and labor leaders and political leaders of different parties all just hung out together and, you know, welcomed each other's roles in the world. It wasn't like that at all. I mean, on the contrary, it was a pretty divisive situation and, and labor leaders and business leaders tended to pretty much vilify each other. But in 1941, given the stakes that they saw they they put these differences aside and work together. And so uh, one of the stories, one of my favorite stories that I tell in the book is that 
when when Evansville sent the delegation to Washington D.C. in 1941 to try to talk them into sending orders to to Evansville, they they sent a delegation that was a mix of labor leaders, business leaders, and politicians. And the the Office of Production Management, the leader of the Office of Production Management, was so impressed by this that he gave Evansville a lot of extra time for their meeting because he'd never seen any city send that kind of mixed delegation. Um, and, and that was one where I thought, you know, maybe that's something that we could definitely learn from today, right? That um, in, in an era where uh, political or partisan divides seem to be as big as they've ever been and where, you know, probably lots of folks don't really want to uh, hang out with people who have different political views from them. The, I think, important lesson is that, you know, hard though that might be, it can be incredibly productive. Um, and I think... Just as an aside here, you know, looking at modern Evansville history, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, we obviously have some very partisan people in Evansville politics, but uh, I think for the most part, our politics has been kind of blessedly free from much of, of the worst of the stuff that we see in many other places. And there is a lot of cooperation and there are people who work across party lines and that kind of thing. Um, and I think Lloyd Winnicky was a, a great example of that as a, as a Republican who really, I think, put the city's interests first before, you know, partisan party interests. And, you know, I think the early days of Stephanie Terry's uh, administration, there's some signs of that too. So, you know, I, I think that's a, a kind of quality of, of leadership that as, as I think about other historical examples, you know, as, as Americans, you're all super familiar, of course, with Lincoln and the, the idea that he brought in rivals to, to work to work together. Um, lots of other examples. I mean, FDR's in the end, FDR was using uh, Republicans to, to run certain parts of, of the both the New Deal and the World War II project. Um, and so I think that was a really important uh, part of, of how, how all of this stuff came to be here. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. It made me think about how often effective leaders are able to bring together the right people in the room at the right time. Yeah. And, and I, I think they're not scared of bringing in dissenting mm -hmm. views being challenged yeah. uh, when when their thoughts are are different from somebody else. And it also made me think about, like you talked about being proactive. An example, I, you know, in, in terms of a famous business leader that, that many people look to as, you know, somebody who uh, has, was really innovative is um, Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things I've heard people say about him is that when the iPhone first came out, People criticized it because it didn't have any buttons. Yeah, yeah. And and people were used to a BlackBerry and mm -hmm. or a flip phone, and mm -hmm. they needed their buttons. Yeah. And and but he had this vision that said people don't know what they want right. until you yeah yeah show it to them. Mm -hmm. And um, but he had a vision that was like, I think people are going to like mm -hmm. watching videos and looking mm -hmm. at pictures and engaging in different ways yeah. than we traditionally have with a, with a phone. And they also said that many of his meetings were very, I mean, there was a lot of conflict in yeah. his meetings and people had very strong opinions and yeah. challenged each other. And, mm -hmm. and it, but he was in a spirit of really a, a spirit of cooperation so that the business excelled right. and it wasn't, it wasn't personal. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was about how do we do what's mm -hmm. best for the company, for customers, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think that's when when we get focused on partisan lines, and I I, th I, I completely agree with your point about like it seems we're more divided than ever mm -hmm. before. And if leaders could come together and say what's best for mm -hmm. the people we are serving. Yeah, no, I and and serving is a great word there because as as you were talking there, I, I was thinking that you know, and and Steve Jobs obviously was a very complex uh, character himself, but uh, I think that being willing to uh, have people in the room who challenge you and disagree with you, and and maybe be people in the room who are smarter than you, 
that's that can be a hard thing for people. And so I think there's a, an element of, of modesty or, or, or humility is probably a better word required there, right? You have to realize that this is not about me. Um, this is about the project, whatever that is, you know, and whether that is saving the world and winning the war um, in 1940, you know, from 1941 onwards, uh, or whether that project is coming up with a great phone uh, for people or whether that project is, you know, finding out a way more efficient way to get fill potholes in Evansville or whatever, right? Um, I think leaders who, who have a, an element of humility, I think that's really important. And what makes that hard is that, that that humble person also has to be very confident, right? You know, it takes a great deal of confidence, self-confidence, to say, heck yeah, come on into the room, <laughs> even though you're you disagree with me and you're brighter and maybe you're more articulate than I am, and which makes me realize too that you're bringing in people who have different skill sets is a pretty important part of things mm-hmm. too. Where you know maybe I, I know that I I can't do that, but this other person can, and and that might may make me look bad, but it's it's in the best interests. Um, and, and sadly, you know, I think what, so Jobs is a really fantastic example and, um, and the Isaacson biography of, of Steve Jobs is just one of the, I'm not big on reading business biographies, but I mean, that Steve Jobs book was just a thing, a masterpiece. But I think what often is the catalyst to make all of that happen is, is a real strong sense of urgency I believe that Apple had gone through, had had some problems, right? And there were certain products that didn't work and stuff like that. And they really needed success at that point. And in 1941 and into 1942, so all of these people go to Washington, D.C. and all these orders come to Evansville. um, And then Pearl Harbor happens. and, And then in 1942, the really big orders come. But if you think about 1942, if you were living in Evansville in 1942, there is no good news um, in the newspaper at all. Things are going really bad in Europe. Things are going really bad in the Pacific. The British are clinging on by their fingernails. And it uh, just seems like there's nothing but bad news on the war front. And yet these people continued. They kept doing what they were doing. They kept churning out, uh, as you said, ships and, and planes and bullets. And what I think is really remarkable, just to return to what I was saying earlier about the important role of people, um, the people of Evansville didn't lose faith either, right? They they believed in these local leaders, and I think, importantly, they believed in their national leaders as well. And one of the pieces of evidence of that is just how much money people contributed to, you know, they were earning way more money than they typically had been before with these war jobs, and they donated really significant percentage of that money every week to to buying war bonds. And these, remember, are bonds that you were going to get money back with a little bit of interest if the country still existed. Right. <laughs> but in 1942, you're thinking, man, we're putting all of our eggs into this war basket, mm-hmm. which at the moment, this basket analogy is going to have to run out right here. But at the moment, Imperial Japan and, and Nazi Germany are, are triumphing everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're getting our, our tails kicked. And so uh, I think the, the ability of the um, American people and the people of, of Indiana and the folks here in Evansville to, to keep going through that is just, I think, an amazing uh, testimony. Right. You, your comments about creating confidence about for the people of Evansville to keep pushing on made me think about this article I was reading in, in the last week or so in the Wall Street Journal. And it was, it was about Jim Harbaugh, University okay. of Michigan mm-hmm. coach. And they looked at what are the characteristics of him because he's really turned around three mm-hmm. football programs. Mm-hmm. And then they, they interviewed this management professor and okay. talked about, you know, what does it take to turn around a business? Mm-hmm. What does it take to turn around a team? Mm-hmm. And the first characteristic he talked about was instilling confidence that – as an organization, we can win. Mm-hmm. And that's the first first step. And it just made me think about how sometimes it really is like an emotional, we have to hit the heart of, mm-hmm. uh, of mm-hmm. people to say like, yes, we can do mm-hmm. this. And that we have what it takes to keep right. moving forward. And that 
I imagine there were probably some really key leaders in the area at that time mm-hmm. that said, yes, we mm-hmm. have to keep going because our other choice is this. Right. And, and I think that is absolutely the case. I, I think, um, making people around you believe when your message, when it's maybe much easier to believe a different message is, is a incredible talent to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I think, you know, the, the Evansville leaders, because, again, one of the points that I make repeatedly in the book is that, um, again, I think a lesson for, for today is that the World War II uh, project in the United States was was it really a synthesis of, of the federal government acting really in many ways like a totalitarian socialist state making people do things and using the massive muscle of government to to make things happen, uh, combined with a sort of super capitalist free enterprise system that that uh, allowed corporations to flourish. And, you know, many of these companies in Evansville made tons of money during World mm-hmm. War II. Um, and some of the people who are very generously support many of the good causes in Evansville today are people whose families made money during World War II. Mm-hmm. So it's this, you know, there's lots of folks who are on the, the left of, of politics who have no time for private enterprise and plenty of business people have got no time for uh, the feds getting involved in anything. And yet World War II, to my mind, is this brilliant example of kind of the best of both worlds. And, and to return to the specific question you asked, I mean, I, I think the, the people in Evansville who were trying to convince the, the, so the leaders in Evansville were trying to convince the people of Evansville that we could win this war, they got a ton of help from, you know, a massive federal <laughs> national propaganda campaign that was just constantly telling people, you know, we have to do this. These are what the stakes are, mm-hmm. um, you know, and loose lips, sink ships and all of that sort of stuff. And so that message was constantly being being um, repeated. And if you look at, for example, the the newspaper that was produced in the in the Evansville shipyard, you know, these messages are being reiterated by, you know, local artists producing little pictures to, to make that point and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So I think if you... I would bet that someone like John Harbaugh, when he's, you know, when he's doing what he was doing at Stanford and and at the um, 49ers and and then again with Michigan, he has his message. But that's a message that's also been echoed, I'm sure, by all of his team, you know, all of his coaches and and administrators all around him are also saying that to these players and, and fans and eventually they buy in and believe. And what is probably really important too is that eventually you do win you know mm-hmm. and you know that Stanford was really successful and and the 49ers were really successful and Michigan has been really successful so people will for sure buy in there mm-hmm. um, I thought you were going to uh, be really mean and ask me hard questions about the Patriots when you started talking about <laughs> football because you know there's a whole other I think interesting uh, question there so my wife's from Boston as you know and I, I've been a Patriots fan since I came to the United States and it's been a great time to be a Patriots fan, you know, right up until the last Last, (laughs) couple of years, years, (laughs) Um, you know, culminating this year. And so I think that one will be a kind of fascinating uh, exercise for leadership experts like yourself to to look at how how does a program like New England rebuild a Mm -hmm. program that's sustained excellence for 20 years and then falls in hard times, you lose a couple of these figureheads that were, were at the top of your organization, can you rebuild? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I can be back on here in five years uh, basking in the glory of the Patriots, you know, or maybe it's a salutary lesson that maybe you depended too much on Tom Brady or you depended too much on Bill Belichick and, and it's not a sustainable model at all. Right, and I, I would argue in that situation that it's likely that they got very comfortable with their level of success Mm -hmm. being dependent on two people. Mm -hmm. And what happens in in many organizations is that we have these often like talented, charismatic individuals who the the organization is too dependent on that right. person. And so Very it comes back strong. to that humility piece mm-hmm. where you say, we want leaders who 
create an organization that's so great it's not dependent on them anymore. Yeah, and and I, again, I'm I'm by no means an, an expert, but you know, Apple seems to me as a uh, a company where you're still seeing many of these points of excellence that Steve Jobs insisted on that all lived on after him and, you know, still setting the standard in terms of design and, and quality and all of that. And, you know, lots of examples, I'm, I'm sure of that. If we move to just, because I think it fits really well to to talk about Evansville after World War II, um, because one of the one of the reasons I, I wrote the the Lost Evansville book was that when I was doing delivering public lectures on Evansville during World War II, people would always ask me the same set of questions, and you get pretty used to answering these questions, and you can seem to be much smarter than you are because you've heard the questions before. But the question that consistently tripped me up was people saying, "So what happened after the war, and why?" And eventually I thought, gosh, I'm, I'm going to have to <laughs> go and find out what the answer to this question is. And I think it's kind of interesting because it fits with quite a lot of what we've talked about uh, already, because um, it it seemed to me, well, it, it seems on from the outside that World War II ended pretty suddenly. Uh, you know, Hitler falls, Germany surrenders, the war grinds on in the Pacific, but then the bombs get dropped and Japan surrenders. And just like that, the war is over. And famously in Evansville, I think 10,500 people lost their jobs the day after Japan surrendered. I mean, it was crazy, right? People showed up to work the next day and the doors were locked. We don't need any more of these things, right? The war is over. And so you might expect a kind of cataclysm in Evansville when the war ends because we, you know, everything we were producing was military pretty much, you know, 100%. But the reality is that since as early as 1943, uh, the powers that be in the city had been planning for a post-war transformation or retransformation. Um, and again, interestingly, there's lots of evidence that it wasn't just business leaders, but it's also union leaders uh, and politicians who are, who are already kind of brainstorming and thinking, how can we how can we uh, make sure that when the war orders dry up, we're ready to go? Um, and uh, you know, one of the most famous company names in Evansville history, Cervell, for example, um, who were led by a famous kind of uh, one of the giants of Evansville business history, Louis Ruthenberg. Um, you know, Ruthenberg wanted them to be ready to be producing refrigerators, you know, almost the day after they stopped producing whatever war materials they were producing at that time. And so although there is a shock, of course, and people do have to make adjustments, um, Evansville was able to weather that uh, transition from 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 war to peace uh, better than you would think because of all this pre-planning. Um, so I think that's really, it seems to me, one of the critical aspects of really leadership of any kind is you have to be flexible and ready to adjust to things you don't expect, of course, but doing your very best to think ahead and think, you know, when this, so a little bit like what you were saying, you know, instead of just being stunned when Tom Brady can no longer throw a football, you know, you're planning, what are we going to do when Brady can't throw a football? What are we going to do when we can't be building <laughs> warships, right. uh, when we can't be building warplanes, when we can't be building, you know, phosphorus munitions? And so the city does a pretty good job, I think, of, of making that uh, adjustment. And then, uh, you know, it also really seemed to me that that uh, we talked a little bit about this off air at the beginning. I would also say I, I don't know if if all of the the leaders who who talk to you are are very convinced of their own um, agency and their own efficacy and and getting things done, but you know, it, it's also I think, or at least it seems clear to me that there are certain things that are simply outside of outside of your control and no matter whether you were a good leader or a bad leader the certain events are going to happen and the the experience of Evansville in the 50s where the there was a lot of economic downturn in Evansville in the 1950s there's early stimulus from the Korean War so many of these war plants went back to making war materials again and then they had to 
ramped down at the end of the Korean War. So from about 53 to, to about 59, there's a lot of bad moments in Evansville business history. Um, and we've tended, I think, to dwell on that as, as the people of Evansville we've t- tend to look at the 50s and bemoan how bad it was and how we messed up and all this. But the, the reality is, I think, Tad, that what was happening to Evansville was really a product of these much bigger forces. You know, Evansville, how had Evansville made itself a, a major city in the first place? You know, it was, it was our location, our location on a river, a river where there was excellent transport and, and transport infrastructure there. And, and once the, the river maybe became a little bit less important because of the rise of railroads. And Evansville was, of course, a, a really significant railroad hub. Well, what happens in the 1950s, we invest billions of dollars in building an interstate highway system. Uh, Transportation of cargo moves essentially away from rivers and even away from rail to going on roads. And so at a stroke, Evansville has lost really its two biggest advantages that made it a big city in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, So you could have been the most uh, forward thinking and flexible and humble and dynamic and communicative leader in the world. And, you know, your business would have struggled, I think, in, in these circumstances. And similarly, just our location, an older city with old factory stock and that kind of thing. In the in the 1950s, the kind of booming economy across the country and in the early 60s, uh, a lot of companies are just simply moving out of old old cities, old towns, old, especially center cities, and moving to purpose-built single-story facilities in warmer places, the so-called Sunbelt. And again, there wasn't really anything that Evansville could have done about that. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to build Plymouth automobiles and put them on barges on the river and send them down the river. And when they got there, they got there. By the nineteen late 1950s, that wasn't the environment anymore. People wanted a specific type, you know, specific layout on their car and they wanted it tomorrow. And that could be delivered with road transportation. So, you know, I, I think that that is an important part of, of what you have to realize, too, is that kind of the best laid plans and the best preparation, sometimes just circumstances are going to go against you. Sure. Or, or for you, you know, sometimes sure. you can be a complete idiot, but you can be successful. Really lucky. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could probably argue that you could have been, again, I won't, I promise I won't keep talking about the Patriots, but, you know, you could have been a pretty bad coach, I think, and probably won with Tom Brady at, at his mm-hmm. peak, right? That was a, a sort of savant player. And, you know, maybe we'll, as time goes by, we'll, that stuff might become clearer. But, you know, if, if you were the mayor of a Sunbelt city in the 1960s, you were probably growing whether you were good or not, right. you know, because that stuff was happening. Sure. Well, I think it relates even to your career in academia. And if you look at all the the factors influencing higher education right now, yeah. I mean, we have, especially in the Midwest, declining number of People, gra- young mm-hmm. people graduated from high school, mm-hmm. the, um, rising cost of education, people questioning the value. I mean, some of those factors are largely out of the control of, of higher education leaders. And even the best leader is dealt a very difficult situation versus what they, you know, a leader would have been doing, say, even... 30 years ago. Exactly. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think there were probably times when you you could have been a very foolish college leader and your college would have been growing anyway. And today the opposite is true, that you you could be a very, very gifted college leader and your, your college may well be struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it particularly applies to uh, to the humanities. So as chair, uh, chairman of a history, politics and social change department, um, you know, we, we peruse the numbers almost, you know, certainly weekly looking at uh, the number of students who are applying in, in our area. So obviously, since it has become very obvious that since the Great Recession, so 2007-2009, um, numbers of students enrolling in humanities majors at American universities has plummeted. 
And um, it, it was, I think, exacerbated by the fact that in in my judgment and the judgment of a few folks who, who I was close to, I feel like we, in a weird way, benefited from, from 9-11 and the subsequent wars that we got involved in. I think a lot of bright kids looked at 9-11 and thought, like, like many of us, right, they were, they were asking, where on earth did this come from? And, I mean, literally students are asking that question on the day after 9-11 in class at U of E, but collectively we were all asking that question. And I think a lot of bright kids figured out that the way I can answer that question is by studying history or by studying political science, for example, um, or international studies, right? Um, and so we saw a big growth in these areas at U of E. Um, and I think, again, if, if I was being very self-aware, um, I would say that as leaders, we kind of took that for granted. And we maybe gave ourselves credit for the growth in the history department, for example, at UE, our, our history department grew very significantly over the 2000s. But it may have had nothing to do with us. You know, it may have been simply that bright kids wanted these questions answered. And then along came this massive shock of, of the uh, financial collapse at the end of the, the Bush administration, the beginning of the Obama administration, and then this catastrophic decline in numbers, which again, we could be as good chairs of history departments as you could possibly be, and yet these numbers are, are just declining. There were, there were years uh, in the last 10 years, Tad, when we had maybe two or three new majors as freshmen coming in and joining our department. So it was, you know, absolutely terrifying. And, and yet I, I'm, what we're seeing over the last maybe two and a half years is, again, a fairly significant uptick in, in kids who want to major in political science and history and history education. So part, part of what I'm wondering is, uh, you know, I wonder if, again, bright young people are looking at the world around them. They're looking at the massive crisis that was brought on by COVID, for example, conflict all over the world the the january 6th stuff all and you want to maybe answer these questions for yourself why why did mm -hmm. all these things happen why did so many people in the united states uh, stop believing in science so it, it seemed again it just seems to my perspective on it was that the united states problem with covid wasn't really a scientific or medical problem I think we solved the scientific problems really well and we solved the medical problems really pretty well. Um, the, the problem was more a kind of social studies problem <laughs> that that lots of people stopped believing in what the government was saying and mm -hmm. lots of people stopped listening to science and lots of people wanted to listen to, you know, whoever on, on the internet, podcasters for goodness sake. Um, and so there were there were no podcast episodes at that time. Right, for me, right, but, no, uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not including <laughs> you in, in this. Um, so maybe you know, bright young people are again thinking, "How can I explain all this? How can I understand all this?" You know, maybe some of the answers lie in in history departments. And you know, a great example would be post post October seventh. Why did these people join an organization like Hamas? Why did these people in Hamas do what they did? Why has Israel responded in the way it has? Why has the world responded to Israel the way it has? These are all very complicated questions whose answers, yes, they're political, but they're primarily historical. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, a, a, a bright, interested young person who wants to answer these questions probably has to turn to history. Right. And I, I've, I've found myself in that situation. Yeah. Saying, you know, why did this happen in the first place? What led to this? What is the history of, yep. you know, Israeli occupation, mm -hmm. Israeli independence, yep. Palestine? I mean, yeah. it, it's very, very complex, as you yeah. said, but I think the history largely explains how we got yeah. to where we are today. <laughs> and this, this doesn't pertain to leadership, but uh, I was really struck today first day in class, uh, in my World War One class, and I always have the students read just the brief introduction to the textbook and have them pull out, you know, four or five uh, 
passages that they think are most interesting and significant. And I've read this introduction so many times that pretty much almost every line in it is, is underlined and I've used it at different times. Um, but as I was rereading it today, uh, it, it was so striking. He refers to uh, visiting Gaza and he then talks about there were two battles of Gaza in 1917, you know, as, as part of the Mesopotamian campaign that the British fought. Uh, and you're thinking, man, there's just here, here we have uh, over 100 years ago, people dying in Gaza <laughs> as the great powers battled. Mm. Um, and then today people are dying in Gaza partly as a result of the First World War, you know, decisions that were made during the First World War and the fall of the Ottoman Empire and all of that mm. stuff. So um, it really reminds you, I think, that uh, history is is not just something that happened in the past. History is something that has just constant echoes uh, going forward up to and including what we're looking at on our phones right now. Sure, sure. Tell me then, you know, maybe as kind of a closing, we haven't had a ton of time to talk about uh, lost Evansville, but just tell uh, our readers about kind of the premise of that and what led you to write that book. Yeah, I mean, so th that was really just a, a study of Evansville, basically from 1945 to 1975. I had to draw the parameters somewhere, so I thought end of World War II to the end of Vietnam, um, and I thought it would be awesome to look at. Um, so not only answer that question of what happened in Evansville after World War II. But look at uh, to what extent did the 60s happen uh, here? Because I think we have a tendency to think of uh, Evansville as this kind of sleepy backwater where uh, if anything does ever happen, it happens way after it's happened everywhere else. And so, you know, the women's movement and um, drugs and sex and rock and roll and the civil rights movement and all of that stuff, Vietnam protest and did, did all that stuff happen here? And, you know, the, the exciting answer is yes, indeed it did. Um, and so that in that sense, I was really, I thought that was kind of lost history. That was a kind of version of Evansville that most people haven't talked about for the last 50 years. Um, and then there was a more physical reason as well, where I was thinking about so many buildings, uh, so much of Evansville was transformed physically and some really important, beautiful buildings, the old Central High School, the Assumption Cathedral, uh, the Cook Brewery, just to name three, were demolished and replaced with typically not, not very beautiful buildings. And so there's this kind of lost Evansville there. But what I, what I also quickly realized is that it's, it's a story of not just of what was lost, but what came in its place. And also what was preserved, you know, I think like many cities, including most famously New York, right about 1973, Evansville kind of almost seems like Evansville woke up one day and said, man, we got to stop demolishing things. Mm -hmm. um, because probably the next big ticket item for the Wreckers Ball would have would have been the old courthouse. And then the, you know, the, the old uh, city jail and sheriff's residence across the road would have gone and probably the Coliseum and, uh, you know, Bossy Field. And who knows, you know, that, that if, if they had just continued the way they would have been going, um, anything could potentially have been demolished. But um, as in many other parts of the country, right around about 73, the, the, the historic preservation movement really kicked in. And there's some, like I think, really almost heroic stories of the people that worked really hard to save these parts of Evansville's history. Um, and then uh, I was also, I feel very, very privileged to be able to have told some of the stories of the civil rights movement because I felt like that was something that, for the most part, I didn't know anything about. I had no idea that a civil rights movement happened in Evansville. And yet there's these really heroic stories of, of uh, African-American men and women, but not just African-Americans, also uh, white men and women, um, young and old, uh, Christians and Jews who, who were all part of this process. And I think it's a really inspirational story. There's the negative side of it, of course, that racism and segregation was all here. But it's also, I think, a very uplifting story of, of a pretty organic movement uh, and leadership coming from all sorts of different places to, to change Evansville and, and make it, I think, a better place. Mm -hmm. 
great. We could probably do a, a whole podcast episode on uh, civil rights oh, movement man. or yeah, the book. That would, uh, that would be awesome. Uh, yeah. So I, maybe maybe that's one we could uh, yeah, stay tuned for. Yeah, I th- I think uh, that's my next project too. Is I, I would really like to work on what would effectively be an oral history of of that. Mm-hmm. Interviewing some of these people who either have memories themselves or, you know, parents and grandparents have memories. But, you know, even uh, Stephanie Terry, you know, her her father and grandfather were both uh, involved in, in the in the movement. And, you know, as, as preachers were, you know, oftentimes uh, black preachers were very active in the movement. So um, it's pretty cool to see that. Uh, it's funny because my my most the first time I did a public speech about the civil rights movement, it ended almost on a kind of negative. We still have a long way to go. Um, and then about you know a week later, we elected a, a black woman as our mayor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I finished now with that iconic photograph of Stephanie Terry looking at the wall of pictures of all the former mayors who are all white men. And it's I think a really powerful reminder that that. Change, you know, change is still happening, and is happening right up to and including now. Yeah, when I saw that photo, I it's really a striking photo, and uh, kind of reminds all of us that change has occurred. We're uh-huh. not perfect. We are, in many ways, a product of, yeah. of the history, mm-hmm. and we can look back and and learn from. Both the good and the bad. Exactly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The inspirational leaders who helped effect change in the past, but there's also people like that today. And also, in, in many respects, we all still have work to do, you know, mm-hmm. and some of us have to take leadership positions there and realize, okay, we've come this far, but let's keep going. Exactly. Well, how could our listeners find out more about you or your books? Yeah, well, I'm my email is jm224 at evansville.edu. So I, I work, as you said, at the University of Evansville. And I, I will be doing some events at the uh, several different public libraries uh, in uh, January, February, and March. So depending on what's, when this comes out, if you go on the uh, EVPL's website, you'll be able to see some of these. I'll be doing some talks and doing some book signings. Great. All right. Well, we really appreciate you being on this podcast, James. Uh, great discussion. Like I said, we probably could have selected some of these topics as like their own podcast, but I think this provided some really good takeaways about leadership and, and sort of how they've influenced history and how we ended up where we are today. So I want to thank you again for your time. Oh, you uh, bet. I think our listeners will really enjoy this episode. Well, I hope so. And thank you so much for inviting me, Todd. It's been a great pleasure. All right. Thank you. Thanks. To learn more about Dr. Tad Dickel and the T.A. Dickel Group, please visit tadickel.com. Thank you for joining us.